Welcome to the sermon ministry of River Community Church, a congregation of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church located in Prairieville, Louisiana. Our purpose is to help people live in and live out the good news of Jesus Christ. We welcome you to worship with us on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and to learn more about us at rivercommunity.org. reading today comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 8, verses 18 to 23. Please hear the word of the Lord. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes. And birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated. All right, again, I apologize if I sound a little bit different today. I am getting over something. I don't know what it is, but I am getting over it. Uh, so this is the last Sunday in the series that we have titled, What If? And the idea of this series has been that choosing the path of faith involves choices. That we have seen it requires uh, rejecting indifference. It requires rejecting instant gratification. It requires rejecting envy. It requires choosing courage. Um, last week, we, we saw that it requires us to face grace, not to be, uh, to recognize that grace is either something that humiliates us or, or that it, it humbles us. And it's only those who are able to receive God's grace and come to God by grace alone that are able to take the path of faith. So this week we conclude the series with a passage that is, that is very challenging. It basically reminds us that if we're going to choose the path of faith, we have to count the cost. Count the cost. So <clears throat> I'm a bit nervous to share what I'm about to share because I don't want it to come across the wrong way. But I'm going to share it because I think it is relevant to understanding the passage. So uh, in around uh, 2006, my wife and I, mid, uh, mid to late 20s, her in the late 20s, me mid 20s, because she's older, um, we were uh, uh, at, uh, at this wonderful uh, gala for the American Heart Association. Every, everyone was dressed in red, and everybody was at one of these big fancy tables, and there were these great speakers, and and uh, a big dance, and, and uh, there was auction for all of these, you know, hoity-toity things. And uh, we're sitting amongst, you know, uh, this group of important people and that group of important people. And, and we're in a, a group of movers and shakers in the middle of, of our town. And uh, it was a good place to be. Like, wow, we, we, uh, we look pretty, pretty good here. Uh, we fit in. My wife was... Uh, in her uh, medical practice, and, and uh, that's, that's partly why we were there. 
but we were belonging amongst all of this uh, pomp and, and uh, all of this high society. Similarly, about uh, two or three months before that, my wife and I were at uh, another banquet at my workplace where um, I was being featured as one of the promising future leaders for uh, my engineering firm. I had just gone through their little management school as, as, a, as a, a candidate, and so I, we were in the room with all the presidents and the vice presidents, and, and uh, the whole point was, you know, look at this. So the point is, in the late 20s of my life, my wife and I were literally looking at the world with a lot of, um, of upward mobility. And uh, we were excited about it. I mean, all of that was in front of us. And then something changed. Something changed in the form of a sense of of, of call upon Becky and my life. And so what happened over the next several years, uh, we slashed our income because to uh, fit... Going to seminary, I couldn't uh, have a job. We slashed jobs. Both Becky and I have have changed our jobs. Uh, We have had uh, family strain. I've had fights with my uh, parents uh, whose, they were tear-filled. And uh, some of those wounds haven't healed. Uh, we've changed homes. Uh, everything about our roots. Uh, you, can, you can put a hundred-mile circle around Kansas City and find all of the bones of the Edwards family for about 150 years. All right? But that's changed. And so all of that has changed. From, from where, you know, you could see one direction uh, early in our 20s, and now uh, we're on a different direction. And uh, all of that has changed because of what the gospel has told us, the gospel has said to us for our lives. And if all of that sounds impressive, I don't know that it's, it's not meant to, but the Smith family have basically just taken all of that and said, well, hold my beer. Because they, they're taking it even further. Now, I, I don't share this to, to draw attention or to make you think, wow, well, I'm some super person that, that I have, have done all of that. I share all of that because I want to, to bring this out today. I want you to know he is worth it. Okay? You can lose a lot from the worldly perspective, but he is worth it. And so today I want to finish this series on what if by counting the cost. Because something that is so essential to the path of faith is that you have counted the cost. There is a reason that there are many people whose faith seems to get a certain 
way down the road and sputters and flatlines and doesn't develop because they never counted the cost. The thing that they can't sacrifice, the thing that they can't say he's worth it for, they stop there. And that becomes the fullness of their faith. We must count the cost because the path of faith requires us to make knowing Jesus our life's highest priority. And if it isn't, life will find that out. So as we look at this passage, we are going to see how Jesus brings to the head, am I your highest priority in three different groups in our passage? And the way, and, and what we need to grasp as we look at each one of these, three, each of these priorities is that each of these priorities that, that come to Jesus, if they become our ultimate priority, they will halt us from following Jesus on the path of faith. And if they halt us from following Jesus on the path of faith, they will leave us with a life that does not testify. He is worth it. And so let us go through this passage and look at these three priorities that will halt us from following Jesus on the path of faith. And I'm going to warn you, they get harder as the passage goes along. So don't feel like you're swimming until we're done. The first, we will not follow Jesus far if our priority is freedom first. We will not follow Jesus far if our priority is Jesus first. Let's look at verse, the first part of verse 18. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. When Jesus saw a crowd around him. Now, the context for our passage, this is the, towards the beginning of, of Jesus' ministry. He starts his ministry in Galilee, and then eventually he ends up in Jerusalem for his last week. But he spends a great deal of time up in this northern region of Jerusalem, the region of, of Galilee, which is kind of defined by this big lake. And Jesus' ministry starts uh, exciting. There are uh, uh, many healings that he does. People, people discover that there's this, this man who, who he, just, he touches or he says a word, and, and whatever, whatever illness you have, whether it be leprosy or, or blindness or, or you know, fever or, or, or epilepsy or anything, he, he just heals it. You've got to come. Jesus is this man who can heal. He's a man who, who does exorcisms. People who are afflicted with, with demons, Demons just rush out, terrified of Jesus' presence. He's, he's, uh, he's doing miracles. I mean, this is, this is an amazing person that's on the scene, and so there are crowds coming around saying, well, who is this, and what is he doing, and what's he all about? On top of that, he has authoritative teaching. In Matthew 5, 6, and 7, we have the Sermon on the Mount, and 
And he declares things with authority, things that, that the people had just never heard said quite that way. It was powerful and, and riveting and, and transforming. In addition to this, Jesus comes on the scene in a, in a time in Israel's history where messianic expectation is sky high. They've been living under the, the oppression of, of a foreign ruler, the Romans. And they are just desperate for all these prophecies of, a, of, a, of a, a son of David to come and deliver them from their oppressor. And so there are many movements that are going around, not at exactly the same time, but, but decades before and decades after, where people say, maybe this guy's the Messiah. And so Jesus comes in and, and they start saying, maybe this guy's the Messiah. On top of that, John the Baptist has, has stirred everyone up preaching. It is a time of repentance, and, and he has announced it to everybody. Jesus is the one that I am announced is coming. And so the result of all of this is, verse 18, a crowd was around Jesus. Now, what is this crowd? This crowd is, is a word used in the Gospels often. It's this indescript group. It's this group of people who have been drawn to Jesus for many reasons. We've covered some of them. They may be needing healing. They may be interested in the teaching. They may uh, uh, be fascinated by the miracles. They may be caught up with the messianic fever. They, they, are, they are coming to Jesus because they're curious. They're piqued. They're interested. But... They're also uncommitted. The crowd does not describe the group of committed followers of Jesus. The crowd is always fluctuating, always changing, always assembling, always dispersing. The same uh, uh, crowd language is used in, in the Passion Week as it is used in Galilee. It's, it's, it's just the group of people. It's the group think that is, that is taking over at any given time. Here's the definition of the crowd. They are the people following Jesus who at any time are free to come and free to go. That's the crowd. They are people who like Jesus, but they choose to engage Jesus on their own terms, and only as far as it interests or benefits them. I don't mean to be downplaying them, but that's what it means to be in the crowd. You see, what the crowd has commitment to is their freedom first. They want to to engage Jesus, they want to benefit from Jesus, but they don't want to put themselves in, a, in an entanglement with Jesus that somehow cuts away their freedom to move in and out as they choose. Otherwise, they would not be part of the crowd, as we will see. Now, is that relevant to us today? Is there a crowd mentality around Jesus there certainly is a crowd mentality around Jesus. And it's, it's very strong. Coming from a different part of the United States, I can tell you that down here in the South, there seems to be much more of a 
cultural cachet to Christianity than there is elsewhere in the country. I, I, I couldn't find a, a billboard in Kansas City from a traffic lawyer using the Beatitudes. That, that just wouldn't make any sense because a traffic lawyer is all about suing people, not peacemaking. So I don't know how those... I, I'm sorry. I don't. It just doesn't, it just doesn't make sense. But I'm learning lots of things. I'm still acculturating. But there is evidence in that, that there is a cultural cachet to Christianity. There's, a, there's, a, there's an appeal to being Christian just from a, a cultural value perspective. And we also are a people who like freedom. We like freedom. We hop from church to church quickly because that's our freedom. I'm not going to put up with that program or that leader or that lousy sermon or whatever. We choose our freedom. We, we tailor our church and our gospel often to what we want and based on our needs. What about you? Have you have you clung to your freedom, your ability to stay not too entangled, not too committed to, to any one thing? Do you do you kind of like the fact that you're not plugged in? That you have this kind of safe buffer distance. That you have your church life and you have the rest of your life. Whether you make this Sunday or next Sunday, it's going to make not a whole lot of effect. Just asking these questions. Because here's what's important. Jesus doesn't stay with the crowd. Look at the rest of verse 18. He sees the crowd, and he gave orders to go over to the other side. Like, Jesus sees the crowd, and he's like, I've been here long enough. <laughs> Let's go to the other side. Jesus creates a sudden moment of decision, a sudden moment of crisis. You see, if you're going to stay with Jesus, and Jesus is leaving the crowd then you have to, by definition, leave the crowd to stay with Jesus. That's the crisis that Jesus is creating. Following Jesus in this passage is clear. It requires coming out of the crowd to go wherever he goes. We have to surrender freedom first as our priority. Because to follow Jesus means we no longer set the terms. We no longer set where we are going, what we are doing. To be with Jesus means that we follow him. He leads us, we follow him. And who are these people that he is now taking care of? Look down at verse 23. When he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. Crowd disciples followed him. There is a separation 
between the crowds and the disciples. Those who sacrifice freedom first are those who can call themselves disciples of Jesus because they allow Jesus to set the terms. They allow Jesus to say where we are going and what we are doing. So we must count the cost. Beloved, if you are holding to your freedom, if you are priding the fact that you are barely engaged, that you could walk on any Sunday into any church, that you could stay or leave, that you haven't really spent the time to wrestle who is Jesus, what does it mean to follow Jesus, what are his uh, commandments to me, what does it mean to be obedient, what does it mean to have Jesus the Lord of my sex life, what does it mean to have Jesus the Lord of my finances, if those questions are things that you're, you're not interested and you actually bracket out and a dozen others, you won't last long. There is a sifting that is coming. This cultural cachet of church is ending fast. The South is the slowest, and that's a compliment, but it is not going to last forever. If at heart you are holding on to freedom first, then the words that Jesus gives in the parable of the soils is a warning to you. Mark chapter 4, verse 16 and 17 says this, And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. That is what happens if your commitment is to freedom, if your commitment is to the crowd level. The crowd is fickle, and the crowd will not stay with Jesus because when Jesus heads to the cross, the crowd changes their chant. Don't they? So are you counting the cost? Have you committed to following Jesus wherever he goes. So that's first. We will not follow Jesus far if our priority is freedom first. But second, we will not follow Jesus far if our priority is lifestyle first. We will not follow Jesus far if our priority is lifestyle first. Let's look now at verse 19. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Amen. <laughs> this guy just graduated from the crowd. He just commit, confessed, I will follow you wherever you go. He says, I'm ready to be a disciple. The scribe sees following is more than crowd level. He pledges himself to Jesus. Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. He has heard Point one of the sermon, pat that guy on the back. And it's earnest. He means what he is saying. He is coming and he is meaning every word. He says to, he says to Jesus, teacher, that is a 
high term of respect because he is a teacher himself. He's saying, I want you to teach me. I want to be underneath your tutelage. I want to be your disciple. You're a teacher of teachers. It's a high praise coming from this particular individual. I will follow you wherever you go. Now, understand this uh, particular part of the passage. We, We need to understand something about scribes. Scribes can also be translated uh, teacher of the law uh, in your, in your uh, Bible. Sometimes it's, it's interchangeable. Some other teachers of the law, other scribes in the New Testament that you may be familiar with, Nicodemus, he's the one who came to Jesus in the, in the night, and Jesus explained to him what it meant to be born again. Uh, Joseph of Arimathea, he was one that sat on the council and uh, was the one who, who asked for Jesus' uh, body. Um, after the crucifixion. So there are, are people who are following Jesus who are scribes. It's not, it's not like one of these uh, terms in the Bible where we're just supposed to assume this person has no redeeming qualities. A scribe can be a follower of Jesus, and this one certainly is calling himself one. A scribe is a high position, perhaps the highest position in first century Israel. They were the judges on religious and legal disputes. They were identified by wearing uh, very uh, ornate robes with, with uh, uh, distinctive features to them that made them known in, comp- in, in the company. They were given the title, official title, rabbi. He referred to each of them as rabbi this and rabbi that. They were the authoritative keepers of the Old Testament law. You had a question about the Bible, you came, you asked a scribe, and what the scribe said, that was the authoritative teaching. They were keepers of that. They had a position of great privilege. Jochem Jeremiah, in his uh, book of of the uh, city of Jerusalem in the first century, says that the highest places are kept for the scribes, and the rabbi has precedence and honor over the aged, even over parents. In the synagogue, too, he had the seat of honor. This is a high position. This is a person of great significance and great influence and who is held in high esteem. So what is Jesus hearing from this scribe? He is hearing a sincere pledge from one of society's most influential and well-heeled. But the question is, has he counted the cost? Jesus responds to him in verse 20. Let's listen to verse 20 again. Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Kind of a cryptic, puzzling response. Why doesn't he just say, Great! We're happy to have an illustrious scribe following me. This is... uh, this is going to really help my, could you, you know, uh, write the forward to my next book? You know? <laughs> this, is, this is not usually what you expect. You know, you want to pick up followers like this. But Jesus throws this thing back at him, and it's, it's a peculiar response. So he, he says of himself, Jesus says of himself a particular title. He calls himself the Son of Man. Now, what does Jesus mean when he uses the term Son of Man? It's used about 80 times in, in the Gospels. It's, it's Jesus' favorite uh, designation for himself that, that he has over anything else. 
Some people think son of man just means that Jesus is identifying humanity. He's saying, I am, I am fully flesh. I am fully human. That's what I mean when I say son of man. But in fact, that, that doesn't apply, especially in this text. Son of man is being used as a title. It is being used as a title of honor. Likely, what Jesus is, is referring back to is the phrase son of man used in the Old Testament, which we find in the book of Daniel, chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. I want to read those verses for you now. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him, the son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is when the, when the word son of man is being spoken to a scribe, an expert of the Old Testament. This would be the word Jesus expects him to pick up, son of man. Jesus is calling himself the person described here in Daniel 7.13, this person who was given dominion and glory in a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. So what is Jesus saying? He's saying, I am claiming the highest title. You have the title of rabbi. I have the title son of man. But here's what you need to grasp if you want to follow me. The son of man doesn't know where he's going to lay his head at night. The son of man has less certainty about his sleeping situation than a fox or a bird. The son of man lives homeless. Do you see what is being brought to a head here? What is being brought to a head here is this. Another way Jesus could be saying it is, is, is something like this. I, the Son of Man, the one who has been given authority and glory and sovereign power and am worthy of worship from all peoples, have come to earth to own nothing, to be homeless, to not even know where I will lay my head tonight. I have left behind glory and honor and high position. My path is a path of self-denial and hardship and suffering. Anyone who follows me must be prepared to do the same. Are you prepared to leave your lifestyle to be my disciple? See, that's what's being brought to a head in this answer. Jesus is looking at the scribe in his nice robe, in his nice position, his privilege, his stature. And he is saying, oh, buddy, if you want to follow me, you're going to have to be willing to give all of that up. And I think it's telling that we don't hear any more from the scribe. He disappears at this point. He couldn't follow Jesus further 
because his priority was revealed. Lifestyle first. I want, I want Jesus' teachings, but I want Jesus' teachings not to get in the way of my lifestyle, of my position, of, of me calling my own shots, of going through the, the, the world with, with the, the honor and prestige that, that I have developed. And if we want to be honest, lifestyle first is a commitment, is a priority that we all struggle with. Lifestyle first shows up in the protection of comfort, in the protection of ease, in the protection of security, in the protection of privilege, in the protection of status. Are we willing to allow the gospel to call us into places that might take those away? That might require us to choose not those things. If lifestyle is most important, our relationship with Jesus will be conformed to these things. You understand what that means? You'll fit Jesus into these other things. Jesus is what you start with. And where those other things fit are up to him. But this is the question. We will not follow Jesus far if our priority is lifestyle first. So count the cost. Jesus says in Mark chapter 8, verses 34, calling to the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You see what's essential to the gospel call? It's self-denial. The project of self-promotion and advancement in the gospel are at, at, at loggerheads. If you are going to grow in the path of faith, if you're going to grow in your relationship to Jesus, there must be self-denial. You must say, not me, you. Even when that costs me the promotion, even when that costs me the comfort, even when that costs me the security, even when that costs me the lifestyle. When Jesus says you must be willing to uh, take up the cross and follow me, he's not just saying you must be willing to die. He's saying you must be willing to take the utter humiliation of bearing a cross. You recognize that, that, that one of the uh, worst parts of crucifixion was the spectacle. You were required to take this heavy cross and drag it down the street amongst a gauntlet of people who looked at you and mocked you and jeered you and threw refuse at you because you were the scum of the earth. Jesus is saying, if you want to be my disciple, you have to be willing to lose it all. You have to be willing to sacrifice lifestyle. You certainly cannot keep me limited to your lifestyle. So let me ask you a question. Is your commitment to a way of life 
limiting your following of Jesus. Third, we will not follow Jesus far if our priority is family first. Told you. It's getting worse. I just hit I just hit a big one. But this is where we're at. We will not follow Jesus far if our priority is family first. Let's go back to verse 21. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. So we're we're progressing right along. Now we have someone who is a disciple. He calls Jesus Lord. It's a pledge of submission. It's a recognition of authority. Lord is synonymous with the word boss. You know how the word boss works. You call someone boss, you're saying, you're in charge. We also know boss is in charge of something. With respect to what? There's the org chart. I know this boss has this much control and this boss has this much control, but I know there's no boss after 5 p.m., right? There are limits to how much we mean under the word Lord or under the word boss. And that's what's under question here. The disciple's dad has died. Okay? There is nothing, nothing in the Old Testament, nothing in the culture of Israel that trumps the obligation of a son to bury his father. It is number one unquestionable. The fifth commandment supports this. Honor your father and your mother. Well, if you, if you cannot honor them by burying them when they die, then what kind of son are you? Furthermore, death was, was a condition in, in Israel that uh, to be in contact with made you unclean. And unclean meant you were disqualified from religious duties. However, such a high priority was there on, the, on, the, on, on burying your own father, that the Old Testament law made an exception that a priest was permitted to become unclean in the case of his father's death. Okay? So, he's being reasonable. He has to take care of family first. And yet Jesus replies with what we call a hard saying, perhaps his hardest. Listen to us, listen to verse 22. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Leave the dead to bury their own dead. Now, where is the PR guy? Man, Jesus, <laughs> this, is, this is just not going to help you. you know, people are not going to be excited with you saying stuff like this. You can't get in the way of family. You're going to kill your ministry. <laughs> PR guy was not uh, on duty that day. This, this is such a harsh statement. It is, it is so unsympathetic. How can Jesus say something like that to a, a man grieving his own father's death? 
Obviously, we want to smooth this out. We want to rescue Jesus from the harshness of it. We want to rescue the gospel from such a, such a crass statement. And so there are, are several proposals that are out there to try and smooth this comment out. Some people want to say, well, what's really being talked about here is a, is a time issue. You see, in, in first century uh, Jerusalem, there were two burials. There was the burial that happened right at death, and then about nine months later, when the, the body had, had finished decomposing, you take the bones, you put them in a small box, and you bury it a second time. And so what's being talked about here is this guy's trying to get like nine, ten months because he's waiting for that second burial. And so Jesus is saying, no, 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 we, we don't have that much time. I've, I've got a short amount of time. I've got I to do my disciple work with you because I've got a, an appointment coming up pretty soon. Okay, that's a thought. And the second is that it's a spiritual comment, that Jesus is saying only those who are following me are really alive. So let the people who aren't following me, the dead, take care of the dead. Okay, maybe. Maybe that's what he's saying. But those both seem to be stretches. Let me, let me, let me see if we can figure out what it's supposed to be. Let's, let's take Jesus out of it, and let's say it's Pastor Nathan. You come to, to, to Pastor Nathan, you say, hey, uh, I want to help with Vacation Bible School. But first, let me bury my father. And I say to you, no. You help me with Vacation Bible School. What would be your response? In the kindest way, you would say, who do you think you are? Right? Who do you think you are to think that you're calling me to work on VBS is bigger than me burying my father? That's the point. Jesus is, the shock is the point. Jesus is wanting the person to ask the question, Who do I think he is? Because that's the main question. Jesus is saying, my call trumps your family obligation, and this is what the disciples should be thinking about. There are only two exceptions in the Old Testament to the command to bury your own father. The first is the high priest. Even if the high priest's father dies, he is not allowed to break his duty He has to stay serving the Lord. And the second is the Nazarite. We read this in Numbers chapter 6. All the days that he separates himself to the Lord, he shall not go near a dead body, not even for his father or for his mother, for brother or sister. If they die, shall he make himself unclean because his separation to God is on his head. All the days of his separation, he is holy to the Lord. Do you see what's being said of the Nazarite? The Nazarite is a person who has vowed himself specially to God. And he's saying, your vow is so sacred that even if your dad dies, the one trump card doesn't apply to you. Now, Jesus is saying, follow me. The one trump card doesn't apply. You must follow me even over family. Jesus rejects family first, declaring in this statement, I'm always first. Why? Because I am the Lord. This is a a, a shocking claim to his divinity. Now, family first is king in our culture. 
There's, there's not much success preaching against family first. But family first can stop a growing faith. It can take you away from Jesus. I have seen numerous people growing in their faith, and they start their family, and then the most important thing in their life is just taking care of their family. And their faith goes nowhere. Their faith sputters out. Their faith goes cold. But I've also seen people who have recognized Jesus first, and they're able to have a family. And those two things are not incompatible. What Jesus is telling us here is count the cost. Matthew chapter 10, verses 37 and 38. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Jesus isn't against family, but he won't be second. The best family is the one where Jesus is first. And so my question, are you using family as a way to avoid following Jesus? Why is there so much count, uh, cost counting involved in discipleship? Why do we have to count the cost? Why are there so many sacrifices? Beloved, there is grace in this. It helps us see how precious Jesus truly is. You see, each sacrifice, Jesus shows us he is worth it. He calls us to hard choices on the path of faith, to reveal to us this precious truth. He is worthy of our all. Those who leave the path of faith for freedom, lifestyle, or family never know what they have missed. Those who do respond to the call, who count the cost and follow him wherever he goes, I can say this personally, they come to the end with no regrets. They come to the end filled full. I don't share my story because I miss it. I am so much happier being here, and I am so much happier for what I've gone through because I know crystal clear he is worth it. Our passage ends with a poignant picture of the why in the road that comes with each of these choices. Look at verse 23 one more time. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. The disciples are the ones who get in the boat. Those who ultimately choose freedom, lifestyle, or family are left standing on the shore. They are literally watching Jesus sail away. And if that isn't the most heartbreaking picture, I don't know what to tell you. Beloved, I leave you with one question. Are you in the boat with Jesus?
Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been blessed by this sermon from River Community Church. We are a congregation of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church located in Prairieville, Louisiana, whose purpose is to help people live in and live out the good news of Jesus Christ. We welcome you to worship with us on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and to learn more about us at rivercommunity.org.